Welcome to the Tech IPO Podcast from London Stock Exchange. We'll be speaking to some of the smartest thinkers in tech and business about their journeys to this point, discussing the tough decisions made along the way, all whilst getting a behind the scenes view of the London markets. I'm your host, Stephen Kelly, Chair of Tech Nation. And today I'm really excited to sit down with Ido Ehrlichman, the Chief Executive of Cape Technologies. Cape Technologies joined the AIM market in September 2014. And shortly after, Edo joined Cape to help transform from an Israel-based ad tech startup into a leading provider of privacy and security solutions. Today, Cape is a cybersecurity company focused on providing consumers with online security, privacy, and a more optimal online experience. Since its relaunch in 2018, the business has grown to over 420 people across eight locations worldwide. Edo and his team have grown the business through a combination of organic growth and a number of acquisitions, including US-based private internet access in 2019, and more recently, Israel-based WebSolence in a $149 million transaction. We're gonna hear from Edo about how AIM has created new opportunities for Cape, how companies can use their listing to grow organically, Cape's big acquisition, and what's next for Edo. So a warm welcome, Edo, to Tech IPO Podcast. Thank you very much for hosting me. I'm very happy to join you today for uh, this podcast. Uh, my name is Edo Ehrlichman. I'm an Israeli. I moved to London um, about 10 years ago. Initially, I was uh, part of the private equity group of KPMG. This is um, where I moved to London from the team in Israel, in Tel Aviv. After seven years at KPMG, uh, I went to Cambridge to complete my MBA. And after I graduated Cambridge, I started my journey with the private equity houses, ended up in a big family office that is one of the main tech investors that came out of Israel. We invested in a UK-based company called Visual DNA that developed a very unique approach of using alternative data sources to help insurers and banks to better underwrite their potential customers. After the investments in Visual DNA, I decided that this is the right time to do something I planned a long time ago, even when I started my career, to move from the investment team to take a hands-on, more operational role. And very quickly after the acquisition of Visual DNA, I became the CEO of the business with a mandate from the investor to drive a significant change in strategy and take the business into a fast growth mode. A lot of hard work and a little bit of luck uh, ended up very, uh, very well. Um, Visual DNA started to grow very rapidly and about uh, close to 18 months after I joined, we've been approached by uh, Nielsen to buy the business in a very successful exit to all stakeholders. After the sale of Visual DNA, the board of Cape, or, or what back then was called Crossrider, approached me uh, to take the CEO-ship of, uh, of the business with a mandate to drive a significant change in strategy. Uh, so this is in a very high level my journey 
since I moved to London in 2012. And you've now been on the market uh, for several years. Maybe just tell us about the good, the bad and the ugly about being a listed company in the UK. Sure. So first of all, if I go back, uh, the business uh, was IPO'd in September 2014. I joined in May 2016. And one of the things, and I always uh, tell it to CEOs or entrepreneurs that uh, considering taking their businesses public, is that they need to be very certain that uh, the business in ready, is ready to make the transition from a private company to a listed entity that needs to work with the market. And, and I think that it, it's usually it takes time to adopt uh, the, not the standards, but the ability to project the performance of the business uh, more accurately as public markets expect. For Crossrider, pre my time with the company, I think that the change is from being a private business, private and successful tech company to being a listed entity on the London Stock Exchange was, uh, was not uh, so successful and it created a lot of pressure both on the capital markets level, the engagement and the relationship between the company and the investor base and, and operationally. Uh, to make the changes and make sure the business continuing to grow and deliver the numbers. When I joined, it was uh, in a very challenging uh, situation that the board decided to make a significant change in strategy. And um, when I considered the opportunity, I thought that it's a very unique and interesting situation and despite all the challenges that I'm happy to take you through, um, through them in the, in the different levels, I still thought that there is a very good chance that I will succeed to make a significant change in the strategy in the different levels, whether it will be on the capital markets level to restore the trust between the investors and the company operationally that despite all the challenges there was a very strong and talented team uh, that uh, waited to a clear strategy and uh, to change the dynamics between the board and the operation and lastly uh, which i saw as an advantage but uh, for investors it was something that was a concern from them that the money that was raised in the ipo Costa they raised $75 million in the IPO and, and except of a $6 million share buyback scheme that was done throughout 2015, there was no deployment of the capital that was raised. And from my perspective as the new CEO, it was an advantage because it's always better to work with a company with a strong balance sheet and ability to execute on, uh, on strategical change that you have the, the budgets and you have the money to drive the change uh, compared to a situation that the balance sheet is very weak and then it's very hard to uh, make uh, uh, quick and significant changes to the operation. So to summarize, I think that being a publicly traded business, there is a lot of advantages, uh, especially access to capital, uh, the ability to remunerate and, uh, your team and to give them a true, uh, there is a very strong tool, the share, to, get, to grant them share options that they will share the success 
of the and uh, enjoy from the value we are all creating together alongside our investors uh, as well as for uh, acquisitions and as you can see cape technology story in the last six years was a combination of a, of a very strong organic growth uh, complemented by uh, earning enhancing acquisitions and the fact that we are listed entity gives us a, a faster access to capital especially after we build up the support uh, with the investor base, both the UK-based institutions, the European and, and the US funds that are backing us on all the acquisitions that we've done uh, so far. Hey, you know, it's a fascinating story. And maybe just pause. You, you talked about at the beginning there what it was to go from a private company to a public company. What advice would you give to a board or a CEO looking at the public markets sort of for the first time that they can't learn at either business school or in, in books out there? What's the one piece of advice? So first of all, they need to decide very well if being publicly traded business serve what they would like to achieve as a company. What are their goals? If they, they want to have greater access to capital, they want to raise the profile of the company in public mar in, in, in global markets, it's great. If it's something that they are not certain if being publicly traded business will necessarily help them to execute better on their strategy, they need to think twice. Secondly, and it's always difficult because CEO by definition needs to balance between different stakeholders, they need to really make sure that the business is IPO ready because you have one chance. It's very hard to gain the trust from public markets. It's very easy to lose the trust. So they need to run their business for at least two years as a publicly traded business in the same standards and be very sure that they can give the market the forecast, the right forecast that the business can, can deliver can tell you that with Cape, even after I joined and we made a big change in the strategy, you, you need always to balance between short-term goals to more of a long-term strategic changes because you always have the target, the, you know, the, the consensus and the analyst expectation for what you need to do for the first half of the year or the full year. And it's always a game that you need to balance between what the market expects you to deliver to a more strategical changes that will show results for the longer term and for people that consider to go public they need really to feel very strong that the business can at least know and project very accurately how they're going to perform in the two years following the ipo and avoid the volatility you do i think that's great advice and that gives you a platform to become i guess you and the cfo the the beat and raise team that you're always consistently uh, just ahead of expectations and bringing all your stakeholders with you. Uh, and it's just a fascinating story uh, and a rare occurrence where you've got a company that's done such a significant transformation in the public markets, in the public spotlight. Um, and many boards would sit there, Ida, and say, well, this, this is kind of a, a root and branch change for the company, go from ad tech to cybersecurity. And we'd far prefer to do that sort of in the private markets. How, how did you find being in the spotlight and doing the transformation, you know, every day in terms of driving the business operationally, doing the acquisition, changing the brand, and I guess, you know, changing the positioning, the customer, but, you know, it was, it was a pretty significant change. 
when you look back at the six years. How did, how did you find that? Because, you know, it is unusual to have such a significant change in a company in the public spotlight. You're absolutely right. And if, if I'll take you five and a half years ago, to when we, we decided to make this big change. So the view was that, one, we wanted to take the business up in the value chain. We wanted to build up a business that will drive high quality of earnings and will have a strong value proposition to our customer base and to change the revenue model to be a more recurring revenue base, essentially to build up a software as a service, a SaaS business model. When we started, we knew that we have a very important underlying asset of knowing to drive high volumes of digital traffic, which is always a very important part in any business to bring the demand to the door. But the, the challenge was what is the best way to utilize our ability to drive internet traffic? And we wanted gradually to build up strong portfolio of software solutions that will help people to gain back the control on the information they share online. What we identified back then, it's a combination of three things. First of all, regulators started to be much more active in the space. If it's the GDPR regulation in Europe, the growing criticism in the US about the use of consumer data, if it's Facebook or Google, and, and the mindset around consumers and enterprises started to change. Secondly, we've seen a trend that since then accelerated about the shift from freemium to premium. It was the beginning of the consumer SaaS. The, the easiest examples are companies like Spotify, Netflix, that educated people that it's better to buy a subscription and get good quality of solution rather getting something for free with very poor user experience and lose con losing control on your personal information. And thirdly, that the traditional internet security providers for consumers and SMEs were building their businesses on the freemium model. And our view was that it will be very difficult for them to make the transition to SaaS models, making money only selling the, the software. Most of them, even today, uh, are dependent on revenues generated through selling the data of their customers or distribution of advertisement. And we wanted to be the first ones that build up a very strong trust with consumers around the world on business that work in a very simple way. We only make money selling our software. We don't sell the data. We don't distribute advertisement. Our goal every morning that we come to the office is to protect the digital security of each one of our customers in, in every touch point of their digital life. And this is how we started. Now, at the beginning, it was staying a listed entity whilst making such as a big change in the strategy was not easy only because we had to manage the expectations with the market. And, and nobody gave us a break of hitting the financial targets every quarter or every six months. And we had to balance between the changes in strategy that we knew that they're right and will, will create a lot of value, but it will take time to realize the full benefit and still manage the expectations with the analyst and making sure that the business deliver 
the financial targets um, we set to ourselves and, and, and the analysts or different stakeholders in the markets have to ourselves. And it was not easy. And, and you're absolutely right that it's a very rare situation of, of making such a big or significant pivot in the strategy while staying uh, public, uh, public traded business. And just interestingly, Ido, you know, great credit to you and the management team and the board. Um, how many of the investors that you had back in 2014 kind of understood um, the story and then have stuck with you and are still with the company in 2021? I think that I'm, I'm very pleased that there are a lot of investors that stayed throughout the journey. And obviously, they are very happy with the results. And there are a lot of great fund managers that uh, identified the opportunity uh, after uh, the new management came on board and communicated the change in strategy uh, that uh, made the very, very strong returns on, uh, on their investments that back then it was still with a lot of uncertainties because we, we joined, we came, you know, we wanted to roll up our sleeves, uh, develop a new strategy and work out on the execution. And people that backed us back then, and, and I appreciate very much those fund managers, and I'm very happy that uh, not just myself, all the management team were able to help them to, uh, to get such significant returns on the investments. And the ones that joined already in the IPO and had the stomach and the, and the ability to go through all this uh, uh, change are very happy as well. And of, of course, and this is natural, we had some uh, fund managers that uh, uh, decided to sell their position in some stage and, and didn't stay for the long journey. But the ones that stayed with us uh, made a very good returns, and, and I'm, I will be the first one to to be happy about that. And, and, and this is a significant part of my job as a CEO of a listed entity to make sure that we drive and help our investor to generate good returns on their investments. Ida, that's fantastic. And I know you make it sound so simple in terms of the business transition and transformation and kind of move into a SaaS model and move into that culture where you want to protect the digital security of all your customers and, and keep all the balls in the air and deliver kind of half year on half year. But you've got a fantastic business model and delivered on the organic growth story and then very selective M&A, which has been powerful. So Everybody who's listening, you just can't believe how tough it is. So huge kind of hat tip to Ida and the team for doing that. And just looking back at the uh, London stock market and the AIM market, what, what's your experience you can share around liquidity and the ability to come back to the market to, to raise additional capital? Because you did mention that it's a great way to, to go and secure growth capital. So first of all, I think that the AIM market... It's is a great platform for company and doesn't matter if it's a tech business or different sectors that uh, starting their growth uh, stage that it's already a very proven operational model, very strong business model, and they need to capital to accelerate growth. It doesn't matter if it's through or, uh, only organic growth or like Cape that it was a combination of organic a growth story complemented by acquisitions. One of the things that it's helped us, and I'm sure that a lot of other AIM companies, that uh, being a listed entity on the AIM market, which is part of the London Stock Exchange Group, 
uh, gives uh, the company ability to raise the profile, uh, gain credibility with customers around the world. Uh, it, it's helping the business to be better with much more robust financial and operational controls. It gives us a new currency to do an acquisition that we can uh, share or issue shares to uh, founders of companies that would, uh, we would like to add and merge into the Cape Group. And it's the best way to create a very strong alignment of interest between the sellers and, and Cape and our investors as buyers. It's true that the level of liquidity on the A market is quite limited, but for companies that in the growth, uh, growth mode, and I think that part of the LSE strategy is that they encourage companies to start as an AIM company and then when they are ready and in the right size to make the shift uh, to the main list. And I think that this is where the liquidity becomes much, uh, much broader and much deeper. Uh, but for companies that are in the growth stage that needs to find a market that can help them to get access to capital, make a gradual change to being a fully listed uh, entity, I think that the aim is the great market to be in. Great, you know, and I guess I got to ask you the question because I think you came to London for a year and 10 years later, you're still here, you know, just building and growing a hugely successful company. And there's lots of um, chief executives and chairs out there across the European Union and out in Israel thinking about that same adventure and the journey, what advice would you give to a chief executive out in Germany or France or Tel Aviv uh, about where their destination of choice should be for a public listing? You know, they probably obviously look at NASDAQ, look at London. Uh, what advice would you give them? And, and I guess, you know, how's London kind of suited you? First of all, I think that if a company wants to play in, in, in global markets, uh, they'll two alternatives, whether you go to London or New York. Both of them are great choices, by the way. It's not that uh, the NASDAQ is better than the LSC and the, or the LSC is better than NASDAQ. It very much depends on the markets and, and, and what suits the business better. My, my advice will be that making the decision to take your business public, it's a testament to the market, the different stakeholders that you are an ambitious CEO, it's an ambitious company that wants to realize the full growth potential. Uh, being a publicly traded business, there's a lot of benefits, a lot of liabilities as well. It's not easy. It's a, there, there are weeks that I wake up in the morning and I say, wow, to be a CEO of a, list, a listed entity, a listed business, it just it's it's a it's a massive headache. You you need to make sure that uh, all stakeholders stakeholders are happy, and at the end there is one important KPI: what is the share price, and it's not necessarily all dependent on you. So I think that ultimately, uh, as the business grows, it doesn't matter where it's located in the world. London or New York are great destinations to get access to capital, to raise the profile of a business and enable the business to realize the full growth potential with a very strong credibility and build up gradually a very strong profile with different, uh, different audiences. That's great, Ido. And um, I noticed as well, you've recently acquired an Israeli tech firm, uh, Websilence, and uh, 
How did, how did being a public company help or support that acquisition? If you look back on all the six acquisitions uh, we made since 2016, usually we like to buy businesses uh, directly from the founders and we would like them to stay with us and join the journey and realize the, the growth potential of the combined business. And WebSalons was a similar story of a great business that uh, grown very well as a private uh, company owned by the two founders. And, um, and the fact that we, we were able to build up or structure the transaction in a way that uh, it was a combination of cash and shares and significant portion of the consideration was in shares because the founders requested it. They wanted to be a significant shareholders going forward. They appreciated the value of merging the two businesses together uh, gives them and our uh, and CAPE shareholders the ability to realize and enjoy from the value that uh, we will create together. WebSellence is the last example of that, but if you look back on the acquisition we made at the end of 2019 with private internet access, it worked very, very well. And we couldn't be happier with the way that PIA was integrated into the group and the way that WebSellence is now integrated into the group and, and the fact that CAPE is already established and successful uh, public company gives us a lot of uh, capabilities to execute on earning enhancing acquisitions. Uh, over the years, we build up a very strong track record of not just knowing to execute on acquisitions, but to integrate them very well. And just as an anecdote, I can tell you that when I joined the company in 2016, one of the most common questions investors asked me was on what I'm going to deploy the money because I had $70 million on the balance sheet that was needed to be deployed. And I said that I will not rush to spend the money. I would prefer to fix the business first, build up the a very strong use case and to demonstrate how we can be the best acquirer of successful and growing businesses that can add value uh, one to each other. And only then I'm going to execute on acquisitions. And I think that uh, looking back, it worked out very well. And we gradually increased the value and the size of the acquisitions that we are targeting. We build up a great knowledge and know-how in the team of what's the best way to integrate businesses that we acquired it and it so far it worked out very very well and i'm very confident that uh, it will continue to work up to work i um, very well in the future as well yeah that's um fantastic actually very similar to what we put together when i was a public ceo back in uh the the when i came back from the us and having your strong organic growth as the engine room uh, is very powerful. I just think in also rolling over significant equity from the founders is a great sense of alignment and commitment to, to the journey ahead. And, and just looking at what well, we've had 16 months of um, COVID and the pandemic, which has been a human tragedy, but how's it affected CAPE and, and how's it affected the growth rate of the business during this time? So... Firstly, if uh, CAPE was lucky in a sense that we are a global business and uh, we, we are used to cooperate between the different locations. CAPE now has uh, eight locations around the world 
and people in the team uh, work on the same project, doesn't matter where, if they are located in London, in our office in, in Seattle in the US or in Tel Aviv or Bucharest in Romania. So we had the platforms and the communication systems to continue work uh, um, as usual, despite the fact that uh, overnight, most of the offices around the world uh, shifted uh, to work remotely. Uh, and it worked out very, very well. And this is something that we are still today offer uh, our employees a uh, more of a hybrid model and they can choose whether they want to work from the office or work remotely. Um, in brackets, I can tell you that from the 420 or 430 employees we have today, 9% of them work remotely on a permanent basis. So we offer this uh, flexibility to our uh, employees. Mm-hmm. Business-wise, uh, because of the sector and the fact that we help people to um, work in a, in a fully protected uh, way remotely, because one of our main products is helping uh, people to protect unsecured Wi-Fi connections. So the pandemic uh, helped us to accelerate the growth even further because uh, you know all of us and a lot of uh, people around the world uh, spending much more time working remotely, uh, spending much more time connecting uh, through unsecured Wi-Fi connections. For example, our homes, uh, very few people have uh, robust security over their home Wi-Fi connections. And this is exactly our targeted market. Another uh, part of the market that I'm very pleased that we, we, are, we are enabling people to continue their, um, their business routine is the freelancers. Uh, it's a very big market now. A lot of companies use freelancers as part of their uh, workforce and uh, our ability to enable freelancers to work remotely, connect in a fully secured way to organizational uh, um, networks is something that uh, worked uh, very well throughout the pandemic. And we see it uh, even today as the world started to move uh, out and go back to normal. That's amazing. And when I look back at you joining, what, 2016, you had a kind of a war chest of cash and a lot of anticipation, I guess, from investors to understand what you were going to do. And just, just the massive transformation of taking a company, as I said, from ag tech to protecting digital security and cybersecurity. How subtle was it about how much of the story you could share with the investors back in 2016 because kind of new CEO turns up and how much did you sort of unfold it um, every half year when you shared with them around, I guess, results and potentially roadshows? How, how much did you, how much advice would you give if you're facing a tough transformation in your business? And, and I guess how much can you share with the shareholder community without scaring them, getting their support, but, but making sure that they're brought along on the journey? So first of all, and I'm, it's part of my management uh, style. I'm, I'm very transparent. And this is something that uh, uh, is now part of the DNA across all the organization. And we, from the first day, uh, we communicated in a fully transparent way and, and we shared our concerns and opportunities with the different uh, stakeholders in the, in the market. And um, I think that it put to, to work out very well. 
Um, and when we made the, the changes, um, you know, we had a lot of uncertainties. Now, looking six, six years back, you know, I think that we are in a much better position compared to what I thought we would be after six years, and it's great. But when we were, were as, as, you know, going through the change curve, uh, there were a lot of uncertainties, and, and we communicated in a fully transparent way with our investors, and they appreciated that. And one one rule, and it's one of the um, basic rules in the textbook, is always uh, over deliver and don't over promise. And and we always set up ambitious targets, both strategically and financially. And and we were able to over deliver. And especially we did what we said we are going to do. You know, we were very consistent in our execution. And over time, I think that investors. Uh, learned to appreciate uh, our approach and and they felt very comfortable with the way we, we drove the change strategy and executed on the new strategy and we helped them to uh, understand what will be the next milestone, how we see the change in the industry, how we see the changes in the markets that we operate in and why we think CAPE is very well positions, positioned to enjoy from the changes in the market and, and, and how we build our think on our future product strategy in order to make sure we have the best product suite to, um, to be one of the best first choices of customers looking to protect their digital lives. And, and, and that's, that's it. We, we just, uh, this was the approach all the time. This will be the approach in the future. Uh, we continue to be fully transparent and, and honest guys that uh, would like to build up the best business we, we can we can do in order to to realize our vision to help uh, people to live a more secure and private digital lives and, and Ido, yeah i think you said some great things there you know under promise over deliver and uh, and obviously being a public company it's a sort of a relentless treadmill of every half year reporting so one of the subtleties that is very rarely talked about, and when I was public company CEO, we, we sort of had three different plans. We had the board plan, we had the management plan, which was more ambitious, and that was shooting for the stars, uh, as to you know, exactly as you say. And then we had the external plan, the guidance, um, and that was obviously responsible, conservative, because the whole concept is you want to be known as the management team that sort of beat and raise. You're always consistently beating earnings and just gently kind of bring the market with you. How, how What's the advice you give to CEOs coming into the public markets around how they sort of structure their board planning and their management plans and then obviously their guidance to make sure that all the stakeholders are delighted with the delivery of the business and the growth and the um, expectations management? So first of all, uh, it's very important to build up a board that, uh, of people that work very well together and to try as much as possible to make sure that all the interests are aligned and just make uh, the life of everyone involved much easier. In addition to build up expectations in the market and to work with analysts, it's a, it's, it's a work of art. It, take, it takes time to build up the experience of what are the, how to, to, to build up the financial targets for, for the business. 
uh, it's always hard to try and project what the business will make three, four, five years down the road. You know, there, there's things that we control and a lot of things that is, is beyond our control. And um, especially with young tech entrepreneurs, and I experience, experience, experience it myself and a lot of my colleagues, that we always set up high targets and we say, okay, even if we will achieve 90% of this high target, it will be still good enough. But when you make the change to a publicly traded business environment, you you can't do 90% of what you you communicate to the market, even if it's much better than what you did last year. You need to make sure that you give ambitious targets, but you have strong level of confidence that you will be able to deliver and more and it takes time to change this mindset as a, as a young or, or a tech entrepreneur or entrepreneur in general that we always this is part of being entrepreneurs you always want to achieve and and push the business and push the organization to achieve much more than what they believe they can do and to make this change in mindset uh, to, a, to an environment that you you need to manage expectations with the research analyst it takes time and it's very, very important to understand it and make this uh, change in mindset before you go public and to realize the importance of uh, managing the expectation and setting up uh, financial targets that you have strong level of confidence the business will be able to deliver. That's great, Ido. And uh, such brilliant advice. And uh, as you said, I think in your earlier comments, you know, trust takes many kind of half years of reporting to build, but sadly, with one announcement, you know, the trust can disappear in a nanosecond. So, it's just vital uh, that that constant delivery and exceeding expectations is sort of embedded. But and it's it's as you say, both data and science driven. But I love the, your phrase of it's a work of art. It is a true work of art, especially uh, with the sales side analysts as well. So obviously you're a public CEO and um, you have to, I guess, be be cautious about what you tell about the future and stargazing. But can you share with me what's in the public domain about what's next for Cape Technologies? I think that Cape today is in the best position we've ever been. Uh, the market is growing dramatically and Cape is very well positioned to enjoy from the growth in the market. And um, the beauty is that uh, we are not scratching the surface of what the business can, can do. We, we experienced very strong growth in the past uh, few years and uh, the growth momentum continuing very strongly. And I'm very happy um, from the fact that we now serve uh, uh, more than 2.7 million subscribers globally, mm-hmm. people that trust us to help them to gain back the control on the information they share online and live a more secure and private digital life. And this is, this is, this is just great. It's just we, we realize our dream of, of being one of the global leaders in the new uh, consumer cybersecurity space. And we want to continue doing what we are doing every day and continue to build up uh, Cape and realize the full potential of the company. That's fantastic. And you, you've done this a couple of times, but you've just given such brilliant advice. I've got to ask you, um, there'll be lots of listeners out there who are either aspiring CEOs or, or existing CEOs. And what, what, what are the golden nuggets that you give them? What advice would you give aspiring CEOs of tech companies? Be brave, dream big, 
and um, n not. I think that you know one of the, one of the main thing that I would say to a young CEO, and it's very hard to execute, is is not to be overexcited when things go better than what you expected, and don't be devastated when things goes bad because this is a natural. You know, this is the nature of being a CEO and entrepreneur. You need to, you know, continue and build up the momentum and goes and build up the, the business gradually and, and it takes time. And not all the time things goes exactly how you plan they're going to go, but this is part of the journey. Ida, that's great advice and, uh, and I'm sure the listeners out there will, will take that on board. Um, be nice to have a, a bit of fun now. You've obviously got an incredible personality. You're a fantastic business leader, but it'd be nice to know a, a bit about the, the lighter side of Edo. So when you're not running, you know, a global cybersecurity business, what do you like to get up to? I have young family. I have two young kids uh, that takes a lot of my time. And when I'm not working, I, I like to spend much more, as much as possible time with my kids, means with my family as, and preferably not in the city. I like to go out to nature. That's good. Good time. Great special, special moments to create special memories. And what's, what's your favorite book or, or podcast that you could recommend? My, my most favorite book, it's, it's a book that was written by uh, Shimon Peres, um, the previous uh, president of Israel and one of the founders of, of, the Israel, of the state of Israel. It's called No Room for Small Dreams. And I think that uh, as, as an entrepreneur and a CEO, you know, it's, it's, it, to dream big and shoot to the stars, it's something that uh, it's one of the key uh, things you need to do as a CEO and entrepreneur. And, and I think that uh, Shimon Peres uh, did the same, but not with a business organization, with a country. And, and, and I think that uh, the way he captured the, the story and his ideas in the book, No Room for Small Dreams, it's something that is fascinating me. That's brilliant. And um, yeah, Shimon Perez did incredible things around the world, uh, driving peace and uh, an amazing leader. Um, uh, and what, what do you like to do in terms of eating? What's your favorite cuisine? Growing up in Israel, I'll always go back to a good place of hummus and falafel. As basic as it sounds, but uh, this is by far my favorite uh, favorite cuisine. I love that. So if, if you could have the best falafel and hummus with anybody in the world, uh, dead or alive, who would the person that you'd sit down with be? Mr. Churchill. I think that uh, there are not too many people that um, impacted the history and had such a big impact on a global perspective. And I'm sure it will be fun to spend an evening with uh, Mr. Winston Churchill and, and listening to his story and share thoughts. And, and it's, it just, it was, a, he, he was a great leader and, and the impact he, he left to the world is it, phenomenal. Yeah. And um, someone who achieved his greatest moments in his sixties and seventies. So it gives us all hope for the future, <laughs> Edo. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, plenty of runway ahead, which is good news. So, Ido, any final thoughts or comments for, for the listeners out there uh, before we close? Dream big, be brave, and try to do things that matter and, and leave good impact to the world. I think that uh, we, have, we have few years 
you know, that we can do a lot of positive stuff. And, you know, as business leaders, as community leaders, I think that uh, spend the time on things that matter. And uh, I think that this is what at least I try to do every day. I, woke up in, I wake up in the morning. Ida, that's absolutely brilliant. I think amazing applause for you having transformed a company in the public markets and taken the business that you joined in 2016 to become a global leader in, in cybersecurity with CAPE and, as you say, organically grow fast and do six acquisitions on the way and integrating them to build a fantastic culture. Uh, with over 400 people it takes a lot of hard work it's easy to say and it's easy i guess on a podcast just to reflect uh on the victories and the times in the trenches but we all know how tough it is uh and your leadership should be absolutely applauded so really appreciate that and your your thoughts and comments have been inspiring uh so thank you very much ido ehrlichman and we've really enjoyed the conversation thank you thank you very much